Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. Look at chapter 12, 2 Samuel. This is the reality of great sin, great peril, great grace, and grave consequences in the life of this man. And we looked last week and the week before that and asked the question, what hope do we have if this is King David? And what happens to him? We see how faithful he is, how much he loves God, and how he boldly serves God as he goes out against Goliath and in other circumstances in his life. and then. It appears in one night, there he is. Of course, it wasn't just one night. William Gurnall said, Men fall in private long before they fall publicly. When you read this, it looks like he has had his morning worship that day and then gone out and looked over the rooftop and seen Bathsheba that night. But William Gurnall says, Men fall in private long before they fall in public. And we need to take heed to ourselves and consider the great and holy privilege of the Lord's Day, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of the living, active, eternal word, of godly fellowship, and of wise and biblical elders. We need to be thoughtful and careful in this situation as we consider There, but for the grace of God, go I, or there I do go, in various fashion. John Piper said about Psalm 51, Psalm 51, of course, is the psalm that King David pens. We'll be looking at that this morning. As a result of all of this, it specifically says in the title of the psalm that he wrote it in regard to the Bathsheba incident. John Piper says that Psalm 51 is how to be crushed with guilt well. What a remarkable Christian way of saying that. How to be crushed with guilt well. And we'll look at that. You remember Psalm 42 of how to be discouraged well. In which he says to himself, why so downcast, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Strengthen yourself to God. Put your hope in God, some translations say. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Learning to preach to yourself. He says that three times to himself, King David does in Psalms 42 and 43. And they show how to handle discouragement. Well, John Piper says this Psalm 51 shows us how to be crushed with guilt to well. Psalm 51 is the way people feel about sin if they are born again. Now, let me say that again. Psalm 51 is how people feel about sin if they're born again. I've said many times that as a young man, I sat in church and I thought I was converted when I was 12 or 13 years old because I understood the mechanics of the gospel and I had no complaint with the mechanics of the gospel. I understood the just and holiness of God. I understood the idea of substitutionary atonement. I understood Christ on the cross. I understood the offer was that if you repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior, you'll be born again. And I said I did that at 13 years old, and I did not hate my sin. And I read Psalm 51. It made no sense to me at all. Shakespeare made more sense to me than Psalm 51 did. Because I was unconverted. I understood the mechanics of the gospel. And I was unconverted. The gospel is head and heart and hands. It affects all three. And only my head 
had been affected by the gospel. My hands had been affected by my parents. I knew what to do. (laughs) I had good southern parents, and I knew what to do. I knew how to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. I knew how to do what my father said to do, because there'd be trouble if I didn't. So my hands gave the evidence that some people were looking for, for a conversion, but it was no conversion. And my heart didn't have it at all. Psalm 51 is the way people feel about their sin if they are born again. There are three characters in this situation. David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, and then Nathan. I want you to listen very carefully to this. If you don't know this, write this down. These names are significant. David means beloved, and everything we know about David is that God is raining down blessings upon him by his electing covenant love. God clearly loves David. There's no doubt about it. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. What does that mean? It means Bathsheba stood with Uriah at the altar of God and they pledged their lives to each other. And that went out the window real quick when she thought she had the opportunity to be the girlfriend of the king. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. Uriah means the Lord is light. He'll find out. He'll shine the light wherever there's darkness and it'll come to light. The Lord is light. And Nathan means gift. It means gift. God of the universe has gifted David with the truth from on high, including repentance. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David and gives him that beautiful story we looked at last week of the man with one tender ewe lamb and a neighbor who had many. We'll pick up at verse 9, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. 
you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us now. Here is godly King David in a great mess. And we're already thinking about what we're going to do this afternoon. With very little understanding of how weak we are, of the vortex of sin, of the craft and power of the devil, of the grave consequences that we reap when we sow sin and rebellion and idolatry. And here we are at the threshold of the very opportunity of that which could strengthen our souls and help us and then help us help others and would glorify you. And many of us are thinking what we would do this afternoon. God, we ask that you would cause this, your living, active, eternal word to go deep into our souls that it would bear fruits of repentance and a true and lively faith with biblical hope and the love of Christ. And we pray that you would do this to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated, please. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Keep your finger there in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. But Luke 17, I want to show you something that's very critical. It's a demonstration. 2 Samuel 12 is Luke 17, just being demonstrated. God sends Nathan to David, and David repents. And God forgives him. We live in a modern world filled with Oprah Winfrey theology that suggests that you forgive people for you. You forgive people for you. The Bible knows nothing of that. You forgive people that they when they've repented because of what Christ has done for you, because of the goodness of Christ in Luke 17, beginning in verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. And it would obey you. It takes great faith to believe the words of Christ. But when we lay hold of the words of Christ, Christ does everything else. And so really only the faith of a mustard seed causes us to lay hold of Christ, and Christ does everything else. Here, God sends Nathan, back in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, God sends Nathan to David, and he explains to him with a graphic illustration, a metaphor, and David is incensed, and he sees the heinousness of sin before he even knows it's his own sin that we're talking about. But even when it's brought to him that it is his sin, he acknowledges it quickly, and he says, I have sinned. And we see the beauty of that, of owning his sin. Owning your sin is part and parcel and inseparable from salvation. And listen carefully, salvation is all your life. Owning your sin isn't one day, that one day I owned my sin. It is owning your sin all your life and clinging to the cross of Christ all your life. Not that you can look back someday and remember with tears a particular day that you did it, but all your life. Look in your bulletin on the third page. Octavius Winslow. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 13. The prophet Jeremiah, beginning his lengthy ministry, has an emphasis, and that is, only acknowledge your guilt. That's the message that Jeremiah has for the people. Acknowledge your sin and turn from it, but acknowledge your sin. And so, Jeremiah, Octavius Winslow quotes Jeremiah there at the beginning of that page. Only acknowledge your guilt, says Jeremiah. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. 
Now, let's be quick to translate what that means by worshiping idols. It means by worshiping a Jesus that the Bible does not know. That's what it means for us today. Worshiping a Jesus that the Bible does not know. Confess that you refuse to follow me. The Lord has spoken. God has laid great stress in his word upon the confession of sin. How touching his language addressed to his backsliding people, whose backslidings were of a most aggravated character, than which none could have been of deeper guilt, seeing that they had committed the sin of idolatry. What is idolatry? Worshipping God in some way other than who he is and how he has ordained himself to be worshipped. In other words, worshipping a God who has different characteristics than the God of the Bible. Or worshipping a God who has fewer characteristics than the God of the Bible. Only acknowledge your guilt. This was all that he required at their hands. Only acknowledge. Poor penitent soul bending in tears and self-reproaches over this page. Winslow is now speaking to his reader. Read these words again and again and yet again until they have scattered all your dark, repelling thoughts of this sin-forgiving God, winning you to his feet as his restored and comforted child. Only acknowledge your guilt. What, Lord, after all that I've done? And you have to ask that question. Again, Psalm 51 makes sense to you if you have an idea of what you've done. But if you think your sins are few, Psalm 51 makes no sense. If you think your sins are minor, or if you think any of your sins, or excuse me, the bulk of your sins are in the past, then Psalm 51 doesn't make sense to you. But if you understand what I prayed even this morning, that God would forgive us of our sins in thought, in word, in deed, by things done and by things left undone. What, Lord, after all that I've done, after my base returns, meaning I've come back to you before. I've repented before. Remember, it's Bishop Barclay who says my repentance needs to be repented of and the tears I shed need to be washed in the blood of Christ. A believer, when he hears Bishop Barclay say, my repentance needs to be repented of, knows what he means. My base returns, my repeated wonderings, my aggravated transgressions, my complicated iniquity, my sins against conviction. What does he mean there? My sins against conviction. I knew it was wrong as I was doing it. My sins against conviction, light, and against love? Do you still stretch out your hand to me, a poor, wretched wonder as I am? Do you go forth to meet, to welcome, to pardon me? Do you watch the first kindling of penitence, the first tear of contrition, the first word of confession? Father, I have sinned. Lord, I fall at your feet, the greatest of sinners. Your power has drawn me. Your love has subdued me. Your grace has conquered me. The Bible grants us opportunity after opportunity, as does the providence of God in our life, to see where we stand with God. And David, in this case, is learning where he stands. He has fallen greatly, and yet his receptivity to the truth of Nathan and of Nathan's call to repentance helps David see where he stands. His sin has been dreadful. And he is in fact a lover of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, in verse 13, we read this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. Taken away your sin. Now that's an interesting word in Hebrew. You should know this. The word Hebrew means taken away. And that's the word that's used there in the Hebrew. The Lord has Hebrewed your sin. Is what it literally says in Hebrew. Because God took away the children of Israel from Egypt. He took them away. They were in one place and he took them far away. Sort of like Psalm 103. That when we confess our sins, God removes them as far as the east is from the west. Same word, remove. God Hebrews our sin 
as far as the east is from the west. Hebrew means taken away. And that's what is, that's the word that's used here. And Nathan says to him, God has done that to your sin. He has taken your sin away. You shall not die. Not only does it say that in the sense of taking it away, it actually throws an H in front of that verb in Hebrew. And we've learned that when God puts an H in front of a verb in Hebrew, it means he caused it to happen. He not only did it, but he made it happen. And when God makes it happen, it happens. My brother Jim reminded me this week that he heard a preacher say one time, if God hides something, you'll never find it. And God has taken away David's sin. Look to, to keep your finger there, go back over to Romans uh, chapter 3. Turn to Romans 3 and let's see how this fits together here. As we're reading through the Bible sometimes, and particularly Romans, it can seem pretty theological and denture-breaking with some of the concepts that the Apostle Paul sets forth as he proclaims the gospel in Romans. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, starts with a familiar passage and then moves to some less familiar. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a good starting point right there. The believer reads about this passage with David and Uriah and Bathsheba, and he doesn't begin to relate to Uriah. We see noble-minded Uriah, and we're like, wow, what an awesome person he is, and we praise the Almighty. The Scripture says that's who he is, and we have no reason to doubt it, but we're not like that. We can relate to the sin of David, and not only the sin, but how foolish we are with strong days, very strong days with God, and then alarmingly weak days. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the very thing Nathan is talking about. David doesn't understand it. It's possible that Nathan doesn't fully understand it at the moment he's declaring it. But God is going to take away your sin. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, an atonement for sin, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Nathan is not saying to David that God is just sometimes serious about sin and sometimes not so serious. And for whatever reasons, I can't explain it, Nathan says to David, but apparently he's not very serious about this sin. Nathan isn't saying anything like that to David. God is very serious about David's sin, but Nathan says to him, God has crossed over. He's caused your sin to cross over. Now, whether Nathan fully understands where it went is not really clear to us, but we know, reading Romans 3, where did David's sin go when God took it from David? It went to the Lord Christ. God did not wink at David's sin. He required the full penalty of David's sin. And Christ on the cross is bearing the full penalty of David's sin. And that's why it says here in Romans 3, look at it again with me. It says in verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, Nathan coming to David and saying, God has taken away your sin, is righteousness, because he's going to put it on Christ. He's not weakening at your sin. The demonstration of righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And so we see what's actually taking place there back in 2 Samuel 12 as Nathan gives him the good news that God has Hebrewed your sin. God has caused your sin to cross over. He has taken away your sin. In verse 16, we read this back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 16. It says, Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's... In the Hebrew it says that Uriah's wife. Most of your translations say that Uriah's widow. Because Uriah is dead at this point, but it doesn't use the word widow in Hebrew. It says Uriah's wife bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. I want you to notice something here very significant. David is concerned in a Godward way. David is concerned in a Godward way 
for the child as well as for the glory of God. He is fasting, and it goes on to say that it happened for seven days. Saul, before him, disobeys God, and God does the same thing, sends him a wonderful gift and a prophet to tell him the truth that you've disobeyed God. And Saul doesn't learn the lesson very well, but Saul's concerned about himself, and he says to Samuel, well, at least come out and walk with me before the elders. Saul's concerned about how he looks in front of everybody. David is concerned about his sin and about the child and the glory of God. And he goes privately and begins to fast and pray. And people ask me from time to time, I've had this question a lot, how, how long do you pray for somebody? And I answer them over and over again the same way until they're dead. How long do you pray for a relative? How long do you pray for a spouse? How long do you pray for a parent? Until they're dead. And that's exactly what David does. But in this case, he fasts and prays for seven days because he understands. In Hebrew, Hebrew isn't really big on rhymes, but there is a rhyme in Hebrew. Two words rhyme, the word which we translate woe. In Hebrew, it's actually the word uai. Uai is the word woe in Hebrew. And it rhymes with the word ulai. And if you put an L in there, it becomes perhaps. Uai is woe. What a difficult situation I'm in. What an unbearable situation I'm in. And it reminds them, Uli, perhaps God will get you out of this. He might. It could happen. And David is aware he could. He could. The boy's still alive. The baby's still alive. He might. And he fasts and prays for seven days. And we see the Godwardness in David. David is demonstrating in his response, listen to this, David is demonstrating in his response to Nathan and in his repentance that he was already a child of God. He's not being converted through this experience. He was already a child of God. Look at verse 20, or verse 18. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. They're afraid to tell him. But he determines that the the child is dead in verse 18. Verse 19. So he learns that the child is dead. Verse 20. So David arose from the ground. Look what he does. There's no longer any reason to pray for that child, and he understands it. He's not praying for the child now. The child has passed. David arises, gets up from the ground. He washes himself. Why? Because of what he's going to do. He anoints himself. Why? Because of what he's going to do. And he changes his clothes. Why? because of what he's going to do. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It is remarkable that he does not eat before he goes to the house of the Lord and worships. Well, what is taking place when he goes to the house of the Lord and worships? It's right there on the back of your bulletin. Turn to the back of your bulletin. There it is. Do you want to know what happened when he went and worshipped? It's Psalm 51. Psalm 51 on the back of your bulletin is what is taking place. Whether he actually penned it at that point or later, this is clearly the cry of his heart. This is what's taking place after he got up and washed himself and changed his clothes and anointed himself and he went to worship the God of the universe. And what does he do? He has this beautiful, beautiful psalm here. In verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Listen, David is not worshiping an idol. He's no idolater. He's worshiping the God of the Bible as the God of the Bible is. And the God of the Bible is a mercy-loving God. The God of the Bible is a mercy-loving God. And David knows that. David's not hoping he's a mercy-loving God. He is a mercy-loving God. And David knows that. And he starts out acknowledging who God is. That's a great way to start your, your prayers. That's a great way for us in private devotions to reflect upon the nature and attributes of God. And that's what he does here. And then he says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. He is owning it. He's acknowledging 
his sin, as Jeremiah 3 says to the people of Jerusalem. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Most of us are wired to deny. We are, by the fall, as we come to the world. We're wired to deny and to diminish and to minimize our sin. That's how we come into the world. Fear, flight, denial, and blame is what Adam and Eve do when they're confronted over their sin. And that's what we do. But the child of God born again with a new heart resonates with the holiness of God, the rightness of all his commands, and the glory of his holiness, and acknowledges his sin. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David stops and lives there for a while in this psalm. We don't know how long he took in the house of God that day. But he reflected upon his sin. And long before Bishop Barclay repented, David understood that even his repentance needed repenting of. And the tears he shed needed to be washed in the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Is your sin light to you this morning? Your sins of thought and word and deed of things done and things left undone? You may be worshiping an idol. If you're not pricked, if you don't have a sensitivity to your sin, Verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's, he's putting up no defense, no excuses, no argument. I can't remember who it was, but I know it's uh, Charles Spurgeon who quotes him, that we come before God with a rope around our neck. Ready to be hung is the idea. We put up no excuses whatsoever. Here, let me go ahead and help you with this and just put the rope around my neck. You're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. And he's understanding that. That's the fall. It came into the world. Fallen. Came into the world a sinner. He sins because he is a sinner. And he understands that. But you, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make, no, make me know wisdom. The hidden part, things I haven't been seeing. The inner part, things I've been blind to. That is the cry of the believer. God, open my eyes. Help me to see what you see. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop is just sort of a, a plant that is almost like a straw. I shall be cleaner. I wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's coming to God saying, you have to do it. I can't do it. I can't wash myself, but you can. And then he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. And there's the word causative again. You do it, God. Make me hear joy and gladness as I reflect upon your nature and your mercy loving. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. I am broken before you, God, but you cause me now to rejoice. Not rejoice that, oh, it's all over and let's just go forward, but rejoice in you. This is who you are, that even though I've done this, you are a mercy-loving God. David is, no, listen carefully, David is in no way diminishing his sin, but exalting the glory and mercy of God. Exalting the glory and mercy of God. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then that phrase in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Start over is what he's saying. I mentioned to you last week, he uses the verb bara there. It's not used very often in Hebrew. The word for create, it's a word from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, bara, created the heavens and the earth. That's the word he uses here, not the normal word for make. Start from scratch. There's nothing here for you to work with, is what he's saying. I need a heart transplant, if you will. This one is clearly defunct. Creating me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's saying, I have worshipped you in the past, and that's how I want to be. I want you to cause me to return by your strength, by your grace. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There is here a beautiful sense of confidence. He has a confidence that God is listening to him. 
He knows the nature of God. There's an assurance here that he's receiving from God as he stands up on the precious character of who God is. Restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That is, cause me to be willing to do what you want. Sustain me with a willing spirit. I want to do, I want you to cause me to want to do what you want me to do. And what will be the result of this? What will be the result of this? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. That is, if I own my sin, people will see your mercy and grace and they will see both the ugliness of sin and they will see your mercy and grace. It is the Lord Christ who is asked how to pray and he says, pray in this manner. And he tells them that they would ask on a daily basis, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And there are many people today who do not grasp the great need they have for forgiveness. The cross is not the basis for not asking for forgiveness. Listen to that again. The cross is not the basis for not asking for forgiveness. You might say, well, it's already done. I don't need to ask for forgiveness. No, no, no. The cross is not the basis for not asking for forgiveness. Rather, the cross is the basis for those who ask for forgiveness that the answer will be yes. The cross of Christ is the basis for those who ask for forgiveness that the answer will be yes. Luke 17, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jeremiah 3, own your sin, acknowledge your sin. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 with me real quick here. Luke 15 is, of course, the prodigal son. We're not going to read it all. I just want you to see this beauty of owning his sin in Luke 15. He realizes how miserable he is as he is destitute in feeding the pigs after he runs through his father's money. You remember, the father has two sons, and one of them says, I want my inheritance now, and he spends it all. Verse 18, this is the sinful son, if you will. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. What does Jeremiah say? Only acknowledge your sin. And by that he means be grieved over it, be broken over it, be honest about it. And this man is. How do we know? I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He does not say, I've learned my lesson. I'm ready to start over. That would very likely reek of King Saul and a selfishness. But that's not where he is here. He acknowledges, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him everything he knew he should say. He did not get wrapped up in emotion. But as a man feeling emotion, he applied reason over emotion. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, and the rest you know. He's trying to get the words out. He's trying to say, just treat me as a hired servant. I'm I'm not your son. I haven't come back as your son. I've come back as a servant because I realize how good you are. You're so good that you were good to the servants. You were good to the servants. And I didn't know what I had. That's repentance. And that's what King David is doing in Psalm 51. Back in your bulletin, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. He say, my lips and my life will proclaim and demonstrate your gospel, your grace, your glory. My testimony will speak of you, God. And I will be honest about who you are. David wants more than the forgiveness of his sins. He wants to be restored to God perfectly. Look, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. 
Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. He wants to be back with a close relationship with God, not just knowing God from a distance, but a close relationship. Christians are passionately committed to being changed by God. David here in Psalm 51 is passionately committed to being changed by God. Verse 16 and 17, he understands the key is heart, just as it was in verse 10. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Only God can give that. Broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so he understands the heart of the matter is the heart. And then what is the result of it? The result of it is David is astonished for the rest of his life at the mercy of God. He's now experienced it. He has known factually that God is a mercy-loving God, but now he's experienced it in a way he never thought possible. And now others around him are going to experience it. The body of Christ is going to experience it. The people of Jerusalem and of Judah are going to experience it. And that's what he means by verse 18. By the back of your bulletin, Psalm 51, verse 18, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Is he just changing the subject here? No, he's saying this is the building of your kingdom. That we would own our sin and then walk humbly before one another, forgiving as we have been forgiven, confessing our sins and being forgiven. And lovers of mercy, build your kingdom, God, this way, not with bow and arrow, but this way. Then you will delight. If we do that, then you will delight in your people, is what he says in verse 19. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me say two more things, and I'll be done very quickly. This is Psalm 51. Very often by the providence of God, the Psalms have significance as to what comes before and what comes after them. Psalm 51 is followed by Psalm 52, and in Psalm 52, it's specifically about people boasting in their sin. How ironic that Psalm 51 is the most beautiful, concentrated, Focus teaching example of repentance in all the Bible. And Psalm 52 is about people boasting in their sin, just digging in their heels, boasting about their sin. And Psalm 53 is that psalm that's in the Bible twice. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are the same psalm. Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. For those who know and love God, Psalm 51 resonates with us and we rejoice in it, and we rejoice that God is a mercy-loving God, and we only acknowledge our sin, Jeremiah 3. We acknowledge our sin, only acknowledge your guilt, he says. And we acknowledge it. Our sin is ever before us. The unconverted rail against it by reveling in their sin, and the foolish think they can get over the whole thing, Psalm 53, by saying there is no God. But we know better. We know better. Brothers and sisters, as we ourselves come to plead with God that this be manifest in us, that Psalm 51, would God would come and write this on our hearts, it will release us to sing the praises of the Almighty. Notice that several times in here, he specifically says, then I will rejoice and I will sing your praises. And he's delighting to do that because now he understands that he will sing with understanding. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise that you are indeed a mercy-loving God. Will you pray with me, please? God, we rejoice that you are a mercy-loving God and fail to grasp our great need even now of your great mercy. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bless us, that you would come and open our eyes clearer, wider, melt our hearts, God, give us soft hearts and thick skin. Bless us, God, in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that we would learn from this beautiful example in King David of you. That indeed, in Christ, we are all beloved in unbelievable and unmeasurable ways. That you have come to us and made an oath and sworn by yourself 
and that we are the beneficiaries of the oath that you have taken and that it will come to pass that you will bring all things to an end and the day of consummation of all things will come to pass and we look forward to that day, God. Grant that in the meantime we will rejoice in the gift of your word, the gift of your son, the gift of your spirit that we might receive it and worship you in spirit and in truth and that we will rejoice in the gift of you as our king and that we would stay close to you that you might defeat all of our enemies and that you might rule over us in your perfect wisdom and love. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.